The following sermon is from the United Church of Tishomingo. And so the critical point of last week's message was this, that while none of us can earn our salvation, only Jesus can do that, we still must be willing to receive that gift. And we cannot receive that salvation, this new birth, until we're willing to put the old life to death. And that's what baptism signifies when a person gets baptized. It's a picture of the death and burial of your old life so that a new life can be given to you through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave. And that's what it means to be born again. That's what Jesus said has to happen. Last week, we, we talked about John chapter 3, verses 3 and verses 5 say, uh, you have to be born again if you want to see the kingdom of heaven. And that only happens, verse 5 says, when we're reborn of the Spirit, when we receive God's Spirit. You know, I've sadly heard in my life, and I don't say this to be rude to anybody, but sadly, I've heard so many people, I can't count the number of people I've heard in my life who say they are a Christian because they belong to this denomination or that denomination or because they are a strict Calvinist or a Wesleyan or a Lutheran or because they adhere to the teachings of this preacher or that preacher. Absolutely none of that matters one iota. All that matters is that a person has repented of their sins in accordance with what the Bible calls sin They've been baptized into the death of Jesus, and they've received the new birth into God's family through the gift of the Holy Spirit. You cannot have God and your old life too. I want to start today with a verse of Scripture, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. I want to read these because it makes the point that I'm making about crucifying the old life before you can receive the new life. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 6, starting in verse 9, he says, do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God, those who have not received a new life? He says, Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers shall inherit the kingdom of God. Now look at verse 11. And such were some of you. But now you've been washed and you've been sanctified. That just means set apart. You've been called out of the way you used to be. You've been sanctified. You've been justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. Now look what he's saying. Two quick things. First of all, he listed quite a few sins that are serious sins. But the point is any sin can be forgiven. Notice everything he says here. But it doesn't matter what a person's ever done, who you've been, how awful, whatever you think, you can be forgiven. But that only comes by repentance. You've got to be willing to turn away. And you have to be washed by the blood of Christ that was poured out for you and me on the cross. And then it says we are made just in the sight of God through the Holy Spirit's presence in our lives. And then remember last week, I also read, and I want to read it again, Ephesians uh, chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. And it just, again, makes the point of what we're talking about here and what a person needs to do. It says, it says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is still at work in the sons of disobedience. And remember what we talked about, if you are walking in sin, if you're living according to the course of the world, the Bible says you're spiritually dead. Not me. That's what the scripture says. 
And it's a sign that you're under the power of Satan, whom the Bible calls the prince of the power of the air. And remember, that just means he's the one who influences popular cultural thoughts of the times that are in opposition to the word of God. You know, what I just read these last two verses, a lot of people, if I was in the right situation, would call that hate speech, would call it bigotry. They'd come up with some slanderous term for it. But the fact of the matter is that that's actually love speech because the scripture says, if you walk this way, we're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. It says, if you continue to live this way, you're dead in your trespasses and sins. And somebody who loves you is going to say, look, I love you. I'm not judging you. I'm not condemning you. But I'm telling you that the scripture says that if you continue down this path, it's going to lead to the destruction of your soul. And that's not easy to do. It's hard to do. But if you really love somebody, you're going to tell them that God's word says there must be a turning from that old life or it's going to lead to your destruction. That's what true love looks like. Now, notice that this letter to the Ephesian church and in Corinthians was written to Christians. And it says in both cases, you formerly walked this way. But when a person is truly born again and the Holy Spirit of God comes to live in them, then your life is going to change and you're going to walk a new way. Because Jesus said, ultimately, you can't have your old life and the new life too. As he put it in Matthew 6, 24, you can't serve two masters. Now, let me share with you an illustration that I think that will bring this clear. I got myself hit right between the eyes a couple months ago. Uh, I, got a, I got a lesson, and I'm not afraid to admit it when I, when I have to kind of eat crow a little bit and learn a lesson. I was at an FCA event in Dallas, and there I met a fellow rep from Kenya that was in the States in this event, and he's from, uh, he's, he's from Kenya, and his name is Moses. And we, somebody introduced us, and, man, we hit it off right away. I was sharing with him our travels, that we do the things we do in Africa, and he was telling me his work he's doing with FCA, and boy, we, I mean, we had a, just like that, we hit it off. And as we were talking, I told him all I'd learned about working in Africa, and some of the problems I'd encountered, and some of the difficulties that you face when you work there. And I, I told him about how, you know, many people in the villages, because we work in the jungle and we work in the bush a lot, many people there... They're, they're isolated and they live out and they worship many gods. Some of them will worship, you know, like the sun and the, and the moon. And there's a lot of voodoo there in God. I mean, really. And they'll even worship what they call fetishes. And you may think it's silly, but literally it might be an oil can or a shoe that they think the spirit of a loved one inhabits. And they'll worship that. It's called a fetish. I mean, they seriously do that. And so you come to the jungle, to the bush, and you, you, you proclaim Jesus Christ. And you talk about how he came to die and save us from our sins. And you ask them, do you want to receive Jesus? And they'll all raise their hands and say, yes, I want to receive Jesus. You know, I want him. But then what happens, you leave, they'll go right back and still worship their old gods as well. What they've done is they just added Jesus to their list of gods. Because they're not going to take any chances. They're going to cover all their bases and so they'll worship all these things in Jesus too. And I was telling how Moses how I finally figured that out. And Moses hit me right between the eyes. And he said, yep, I noticed they do the same thing in America. <laughs> he said, their gods might not be the sun or the moon or voodoo, but it might just be money or power or possessions or sex or whatever. But their gods still the same. And all they want to do is add God to their portfolio so that they have all their bases covered. But that's as far as they're willing to go. 
They want to live like they've always lived and just keep Jesus just in case. And salvation doesn't work that way. You cannot be born again and live an old sinful lifestyle and serve or worship all that you used to worship. So last week, we began to look at the evidence that will be present if a person has truly been born again and if the Holy Spirit of God truly dwells in them. And I mentioned that we could talk about many things, but there are two major things that are absolutely undeniable that will be the evidence of a new birth in Jesus Christ. First and foremost, we said that the Scripture teaches us that in 1 Peter 1, verses 20 and 21, the Scripture teaches that the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, God the Spirit, wrote every single word of the Bible. It tells us that none of the Bible was written by man's own will, but that God, through His Spirit, inspired or breathed out every single word of the Bible. And that means that if a person truly gets saved and he's born again, then the Holy Spirit of God, when he comes to indwell him, the first thing that will happen is the Spirit of God will bring you into agreement with the word that he wrote. And so that's what the scripture teaches us. A person cannot say they're a Christian, which means a follower of Christ, but then not believe the words that Christ wrote in his holy scriptures. And unlike some people try to claim these days, the Bible, the word of God, does not change just because times change. The scripture says in Hebrews 13, 7, that he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do you really think that the God who created the universe didn't understand that the times were going to change? That's kind of nonsensical. And Jesus himself made it clear, if you want to write this passage of scripture down, in Matthew 24, 35, he said one day, heaven and earth may pass away, but my word will not pass away. My word remains. If you've been born again by the spirit of God, you'll believe beyond a shadow of a doubt that his word is true and eternal. So that truth now leads us to the second absolute evidence that a person's been saved or born again. In our verse of scripture to head into point two is James 1.21. So if you're just listening, fine. If you've got a Bible or a phone, fine. But I'd like you to mark this down and, and read James 1.21. Listen to what he says. He says, Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness. In other words, repenting. Putting aside evil behavior. Watch this. In humility, humble yourself and admit you need it. That's all of us. In humility, receive the word, the Bible, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. Now, if you were here last week, and remember, we explained how Jesus would often use everyday things that people were familiar with to illustrate spiritual principles. And one of the most common illustrations Jesus used was the example of how certain um, plants bear certain fruit and how you can tell the kind of plant you're looking at by what fruit it bears. Uh, because fruit is just the outward expression of the inward nature or the inward life of that plant. And it's the same principle with regard to a person's life. If a person is truly a Christian and has the Spirit of God dwelling inside of them, then that person ought to be expressing or bearing the fruit or the same nature as Jesus Christ because the Holy Spirit has planted a new seed of life within their heart. So this verse, James 1.21, where it says, Receive the word implanted that is able to save your souls, is saying that if the word of God is ever truly planted in the soil of your heart, if you receive that word implanted, then from this new seed will grow new fruit. 
And instead of producing the old fruits of wicked behavior, we'll now produce the seeds or the fruit, excuse me, of holiness. Just like, now watch, I, I want to make a principle here. Just like it takes time for a garden, though, to fully grow and develop once the seeds have been planted, it also takes time for a person's life to become fully like Jesus' life. It doesn't just like zap you and all of a sudden you're this perfect person. Because what is undeniable is that slowly and surely, day by day, this word of God that you now know as absolute truth begins to grow up in your innermost being and it starts to produce this new fruit that's the evidence of a new life. That process, now watch, it's called transformation. And that's the second absolute evidence that a person has been truly born again, is that their life will now be transformed from what they used to look like to now look like Jesus. There are three passive scripture I want to share. There's a lot of them I could. A couple of them I already have. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old has passed away. Everything's been made new. He's been transformed. Romans 8, 29. It says, whom he foreknew, he predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. That means that God had already planned that when you become a Christian, that when you become a new person, he's going to make you look like Jesus. And Romans 12, 2, please listen. It says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you can prove that the will of God is good, acceptable, and perfect. <clears throat> so the question now becomes, if the evidence of true salvation is the transformation of a person's life from their old ways into the new ways of Christ, then what's that going to look like? Because um, <clears throat> I'm going to ask you, I do this a lot, but I'm going to ask you to do something. I'm going to say this next thing twice, and I'm going to ask you to hold on to it for just a little bit later. The transforming process is going to be different for different people. But the end result of that process is going to be the same for everyone. Did you hear what I said? The way God transforms us, because we're all coming from different areas, may be a different pathway of transformation, but the result will be the exact same for everyone. Please hold on to that point. Now watch. There are some people in this world that, man, it's quite evident that their lives need to change. We see stories about vicious murderers or drug dealers or people who have practiced sexual immorality or they're sexual predators or ruthless business people who don't care whose lives they destroy, among other examples. And man, it's abundantly evident that their lives need to change. But then you got these people over here, you know, they're kind of a pretty good old boy, you know. They never killed anyone and they never dealt drugs to kids and they never practiced sexual immorality. And compared to those first dudes that mentioned, they look pretty good. I don't know how many times I've heard testimonies that went something like this in my life. People stand up and say, well, you know, I was raised in a Christian home and we always went to church and I never really did anything too awful bad, you know, and I didn't really think I needed to change. Y'all ever heard anything like that? Or maybe that's your story? Well, I want to show you something that Jesus talked about one time exactly like that. I want you to look in the book of Luke chapter 18 and beginning in verse 9. Luke chapter 18, beginning in verse 9. I want to tell you or share with you or read a parable that Jesus taught about that very thing that I just said. <clears throat> Look what it says. And Jesus told this parable to certain ones who trusted in themselves that they were already righteous 
viewed others with contempt. He said, two men went up into the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, and a Pharisee was a guy that was like a leader, and you know he was kept the laws, and he did everything right. One was a Pharisee, the other a tax gatherer. In those days, tax gatherers were like these really bad, you know, sinful people. It says, the Pharisee stood and was praying uh, thus to himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. I'm not a swindler. I'm not unjust. I'm not an adulterer. I don't, uh, I'm not like this tax gatherer, but I fast twice a week and I pay tithes of all that I get and I do everything right. But the tax gatherer, standing a distance away, was even unwilling to lift his eyes to heaven. But he was beating his breast and he was saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus said, I tell you, this man went back to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and everyone who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, there's a ton of lessons in that, but listen. Let me tell you one. Be careful that you don't have this attitude of that Pharisee who thought that his life didn't need to change just because he was a pretty good guy who'd never done anything too terrible compared to all those other really bad dudes over there whose life looked really bad. Notice that the point that Jesus was making here is that none of us, is righteous enough to stand before a holy God because of our own good works or because we've never done anything really terrible bad like that other guy's done. But all of us have to confess before God that we've sinned. All of us have to repent. And all of us has to be transformed from whom we used to be into who God created us to be. And that's back to what I said a minute ago. So watch this. The process of my transformation might be different than the process of some guy who just lived this horrible life. You know, I've never committed murder or sexual perversion or sold drugs. My pathway of transformation might be different from other guys, but that does not mean that my life doesn't need to be transformed into the image of Jesus any less than the other guy. <clears throat> Romans 3.23 says we've all sinned and we've fallen short, and we all must be transformed through this new birth if we ever hope to see the kingdom of God. And whatever pathway God chooses for our transformation, the end, now watch this, the end result must be the same for all of us, though. And that is that we must all end up conformed to the image of Jesus and his word in his way, no longer looking and acting like the rest of the world. Now, next week, I'm going to show you exactly what a transformed life looks like, anyone's life lived out day to day in practical everyday like your job and your life. We're going to talk about that. But for today, I'm just going to close with this story. Many of you know, some of you may not, that for almost 25 years I've done jail and prison ministry. My father got me started in this. When my dad retired from teaching biology at Southeastern, he became the volunteer chaplain at Stringtown, uh, the McAlford Correctional Facility, and also at McLeod Correctional Facility. And through the years, I worked with him at these facilities doing prison ministry. And then I also did my own ministry with some men from my church in county jails like Johnston and Marshall and Carter and even sometimes Bryan County. And what would happen so many times was something like this. Now watch. A guy would come into one of these jails. I mean, a bad dude. Sometimes I'd say, oh, I saw him on TV. And he did some really bad stuff, you know. And every week when we would come, We'd get to know one another, and we would, we would build relationships, you know, and after a little while, they'd start to let me minister to them. 
And finally, some of these guys, not all of them, but some of them would realize they needed Jesus. And they really seemed to be sincere. And they wanted to accept Christ and they wanted to be baptized. You know, I bet you I baptized literally hundreds of men straight out of jail and out of prison. It was uh, when we used to do a lot of jail ministry in Medill, the pastor at First Baptist Church over there literally would just leave the door open and the baptistry filled. And the jail there was so good to us, they'd assign us a deputy. And I don't remember, how, I can't remember how many times we'd taken carloads of guys or girls shackled in chains in a car. We'd drive them to the church. We'd do a baptism and we'd take them back. I mean, some of the best times that we ever had. And everything seemed great, you know. And a person would get out and they're all good. And six months later, I'd walk back in on Tuesday evening and there he is again. Same old thing. And he'd kind of be hanging his head, you know. And his, the first words he'd usually say was, Preacher man, <laughs> I just don't know what happened. I mean, I was doing great. I was going to church. I was taking care of my family. I had a good job. And then, you know, I just slowly started to slip back into those old habits. And well, here I am. Now, we would begin to dig really deep to see if we could find out what the root of the problem was. And here's what I learned over the years working with these men and women. Please watch. Some of them weren't being deceitful when they professed Christ and got baptized. They weren't playing jailhouse religion. You know, somebody asked me one time, kind of cynically, they said, John, what, what, what's the percentage of those guys that are just getting jailhouse religion? And I said, well, here's what I've learned in my experience over the years, that the percentage of those guys just getting jailhouse religion is about the same for church people. <laughs> I, I've discovered that it's not where you are, but it's where your heart is when it comes to truly becoming a new person, and a person can do that no matter where they are. But anyway, many of these guys were not just getting jailhouse religion, but what they were doing, now watch, is they were thinking they could become righteous by adding things to their life. Okay, if I start going to church, if I just start being a good guy, okay, if I get baptized, they thought by doing certain things, they could watch this, they could get their own life right. Now watch, I don't care what you do, only Jesus can make you a new person by giving you his spirit, and then his spirit will produce a new life in you. You can never do enough things to get your life right, and so many people are trying to do that. But you must submit to your death, let God make you new, and then these new works will naturally flow from your life. And so the question would always come up. These guys would be honest. They'd say, well, preacher, did I really get saved? You know, how do I know? And I'm going to tell you that's a tough question. But only God really knows. But my answer to them was this, okay? Deep down inside, in all honesty, was there a time that you know your life was truly transformed? Did you see where God really changed you? Or were you just trying to do things so that you could change your life? Because if you try it that way, it's not going to work. Only God can transform us so that our life and our actions match up to his goodness. But the other scenario was something like this. There's another thing. Preacher, I know I got saved, and I know God made me new. But I just let some old friends and some old habits just kind of have a little place in my life, you know, just a little thing. And man, before I knew it, I was somewhere I just didn't want to be. Because, now watch, folks, even a true born-again Christian can blow it. That's the thing we got to realize. Just because you've been saved and made right with God doesn't mean you can't ever mess up. That happens. 
Either one of these scenarios, they sound like somebody you know. Has that ever happened? Here's the good news. Whichever one it is, as long as you are living and breathing, listen to me, that's the sign that God still has a plan and a purpose for your life. If he didn't, you wouldn't be here. I'm just telling you. He controls every day of our life. If you're here and you're hearing this, God is not done with you no matter how badly you've messed up. God can and wants to heal you and restore you or save you, whichever one it, only you know that down in your heart what you need. But for your part, you're going to have to get down on your knees and dig deep and be brutally honest with yourself and God and find out what you really need. If you've never really given your heart to Christ, I mean said, Lord, here I am. It's finally time. Crucify my old self and make me new. There was a young guy one time, just really quick. It's not funny, but it was. I'm in the jail at Medill, and he knew he needed to do this. He was about 25 years old, but he just wouldn't do it. And finally, I asked him. I looked at him, and I said, you know you need to do this, but you're having too much fun. You don't want to. And he kind of grinned, and he put his head down. He just nodded his head like this. He says, I'd just rather do it later, you know. He knew he needed to, but he wasn't ready to give up that old life. I don't know which one it is that you need, but some of us need to say, Lord, here I am. Crucify me and make me new and mean it. And you need to do that or you're never going to find God's purpose for your life. But if you have done that and you've just messed up, I want to leave you with this verse of Scripture. 1 John 1.9 says this, if we, are, if we will confess our sins, that just means admit we messed up and repent. If we will confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You need to do that. And God will discipline you. He'll get you back on track and he'll get your life where it needs to be. You can't ever mess up too bad that God won't restore you if you'll just ask him and allow him to do that. And then next week, we're going to look at exactly what that's going to look like when a person is living a transformed life according to the will of God in a practical everyday life, what's that going to look like in your job? What's that going to look like in your relationship with your family and with your friends? What's that going to look like in your private life? The scripture teaches many things about what a transformed life looks like, and we're going to look at those. So hopefully maybe you'll join us next week as we do that together. For now, I hope this blessed you, and I hope you have a great day, and let's balance close with prayer. Father God, thank you that... Um, you already knew what this world was like when you came and you died for our sins and you offered us the gift of eternal life and salvation in Jesus Christ. There's nothing that, I know some things sad on you and, and your heart can be broken and grieved because the scripture says it, but there's nothing that shocks you. There's nothing that you're not aware uh, happens. We know that. And so Father, let us realize that there is nothing in our life that is beyond your mercy your grace, your compassion, your love, your healing, and your restoration. And I just pray, Father, that you'd help us to realize that you've called all of us out of the old way to live a transformed life, restored to the purpose we were created in the first place, that we would glorify you by walking like you, by looking like and acting and talking like our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And in the words of the Bible, we see in the life of Jesus how we're supposed to look. And by your word and by your spirit, we have the ability to do that. And so I pray that you would help us believe that and act on it and so glorify you and honor you in everything that we do. Father, thank you for this hope that we have in your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. God bless you guys and thank you. Hopefully we'll see you next week.